This day is a day of celebration, but with a church this large, I know this is also a day of sorrow for many in our church body. I know that there are women here today struggling to conceive and have children. Each and every month is a reminder of the heartbreak and pain that cuts deep within our souls. There are more moms that have experienced a miscarriage or a stillborn. The dreams and prayers for your little one were shattered with the news that your child is not going to make it. Our heart breaks for you with you and your loss. There are moms that have buried their children an experience that only God can carry us through. And there are women here who have lost their mom, one of their best friends, and each holiday is a reminder that you just want to give your mom a hug. I also want to recognize the spiritual mothers here in this room that have, instead, uh, that have invested and poured into the younger women in our church with the hope and light of the gospel. And on behalf of pastor, just thank you. Thank you for doing that. And last but not least, there are also future moms in this room. And we just want to encourage you, be patient. Trust God, for children are a gift from the Lord. And so as a way to just love you guys, to honor, to appreciate you, um, our campus admin, Abby Owens, she went to every Michaels and literally bought every candle uh, in the store. No joke. And so we have lots and lots of candles uh, for you. And just as a way to say we love you, uh, on it is 2 Corinthians 2, 15 through 16. And we tie that in to just thank you, mothers, for being the aroma of Christ and filling up with the fragrance of life in your home. So after service, outside these doors, by our next set, there's going to be all these candles. There's going to be different. I said flavors last time. You can't. Don't taste this. It's scents, all right? So go ahead and grab one. And again, I want to appreciate the mothers. Let's give it up for the mothers. Well, guys, this morning I have the great privilege to share with you and open up the word of God. So don't worry, I don't have any paint up here, right? If you're here for the Easter, I put paint all over myself. Shocked a lot of you guys. Um, I'm not going to do that here today. But uh, with that, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab them and turn to John 9, where we're going to spend the majority of our time. John 9. And as you're turning there, here's some context of where Jesus is at with his ministry and, you know, his interactions with the Pharisees. Uh, You need to know this, that things are heating up between the Pharisees and Jesus at this time. It's evident that Jesus isn't a pushover. Uh, He's not going to submit to their political and spiritual agendas and, and try to be boxed in by the religious leaders. The Pharisees have already tried to stone Jesus multiple times, and yet we see in Scripture that he slips away because it's not his hour. And so we're here in John 9, and we're going to read the whole chapter. It's going to really flow like a story, okay? It starts with this. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and the disciples asked him, Rabbi, which means teacher, who sinned, this man or his parents? That he was born blind. Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned, nor his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. That is a beautiful verse. I would highly recommend you underline it, highlight it, do whatever. That is an amazing verse. 
Verse 4, we must work the works of him who sent me while his day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And Jesus is saying that, and it's this link between good and evil, right? The darkness of the world, Jesus came, he's the light, um, and it's good and evil. So verse 6, having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So the man went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said it is he. Others said, No, but he is like them. But he kept saying, I am the man. Guys, isn't it the worst when you're like in the same room with people and someone talks uh, for you? Like, that's the worst. I can imagine this man is like, hello, I'm not invisible. Like, I can see you. Uh, I can answer for myself. Like, it's me. Verse 10, so they said to him, then how were your eyes opened? He answered, the man called Jesus, made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Salome and wash. And so I went and I washed and I received my sight. They said to him, where is he? And he said, I do not know. Verse 13, they brought to the Pharisees the man who had been formerly blind, and now it was the Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes, I wash, and I see. He's very consistent, you will see. Verse 16, some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was division among them. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? The man responded, he is a prophet, which means a good man sent from God. Verse 18, the Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called his parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, is this your son whom you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. And then we see this arrogance of this next verse from the Pharisees. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. This next part, I would highly recommend you underline it. The man answered, whether he's a sinner or not, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I've told you already and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him saying, you are his disciple, but we are a disciple of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, why? This is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. What theology by this man? Great theology. Verse 34, they answered him, you were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they casted him out. 
Jesus heard that they casted him out, and having found him, said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, Who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said, You have now seen him. It is he who is speaking to you. And he said, Lord, I believed, and he worshipped him. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains the word of God. I love this story for a variety of reasons, as this passage provides so many insights from so many different perspectives of people in this story of this miracle between Jesus and this man born blind. But most importantly, I love this story because it reveals the Father's heart, and it also reveals Jesus' purpose of coming into this world. And my first point that I want to draw to your attention is Jesus sees you in the midst of your suffering. Verse 1, if you go back, it says, As Jesus passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. Guys, when I'm reading the Gospels, and I would highly encourage you to do that, whenever you're reading the Gospels, I'm like very intent of how Jesus did his ministry, how Jesus acted, because I want to I imitate him, right? I'm a disciple. I want to follow his ways. And oftentimes, I come and I see he saw that man blind, or he saw that woman at the well. He sees whoever it may be, and with that, he engages them. He engages them. And so whenever I see the word Saul, I'm like, something's good is about to happen. Did you know that the one of the names of God in our Old Testament is El Roy? It literally means the God who sees me. Uh, Last night, I was just kind of uh, prepping, and I called my wife, and I said, babe, I got our girl's middle name. All right, we're still working on the first name, but I got her middle name. Let's call her El Roy. And she was like, absolutely not, Eric. That is not going to happen. I'm like, but she's going to grow up and she's going to know the God who sees me. I'm like, that's what I want. She's like, no, it's not going to happen. So uh, with that, but if you don't know the uh, origin of that, it comes from a story in the Old Testament with Hagar and Ishmael. After Sarah and Abraham casted them out of their family due to Sarah's jealousy and her bitterness. And Hagar's suffering in her isolation destitution, God shows up and meets her where she is at. And she cried, you're Elroy, the God who sees me. This is a young woman, a young mother who has been emotionally and physically abandoned her whole life. Colin Smith writes this. He says, first, Pharaoh gave her up and giving her to Abraham. Second, Sarah, whom Hagar served, gave her up to Abraham as a wife. And third, when conflict arises between Sarah and Hagar, after she becomes pregnant, Abraham gave her up too. But here's the reality. God never gives up on his people. For the Bible says in Ephesians 2.10, it says, For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Jeremiah 29.11-13, you've probably heard it before. 
It says this, for I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me, come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. Guys, in those two verses, do you hear the sovereignty of God throughout? God's in control. He's the one that's prepared beforehand the good works. He's the one that has a plan for us, a future, and a hope. Do we trust that? He's still working. So right now, whatever you may be going through, whatever pain, whatever suffering, whatever hardship you may be experiencing, whatever dark cloud may be looming over you, your God, our God, is a God who sees you. He will not forsake you. He will never leave you. But he meets you in the storm with mercy, with compassion, with love, as he walks with you. In Psalm 23, it's it's a beautiful psalm all about Jesus is our great shepherd who knows us intimately and cares for you. And I beg you, if you're here today and you don't believe this, I beg you to believe this. It's a God that sees you. And so here's this man, a beggar, blind from birth, isolated, alone, in perpetual darkness his whole life, cursed, and yet Jesus sees him. This poor man cannot see Christ, but Jesus saw him. And by seeing this man in the image of God, his creation, he was moved with compassion and engaged the man. This story goes on to say that he spit on the ground and he made mud and he placed it on the man's eyes. And so I would like some volunteers up here today. No one? All right. Well, how about we all volunteer, okay? I promise you nothing's bad is going to happen to you. But with this, I want us to get a little glimpse of what it was like for this blind man. So I'm going to encourage you to all close your eyes. All right? All close your eyes. I promise nothing's going to happen, okay? All right, so here's this man that has begged, that has cried out, that has been in darkness his whole life, and we have been in darkness for 10 seconds. Jesus comes, and all of a sudden, what he hears, which is his hearing's heightened, oh, that's not enough, wait. And then he touches the man's eyes. When you're dark in darkness, you're scared. You don't know what's going on. Oh, gosh. And Jesus touches the man's eyes. You guys can open your eyes. This man was born blind. He was known as a beggar. We heard from Pastor Brad last week a little, about the, a little bit about the perception of people with disabilities in that day. They were outcasts. They were shunned. They were alone. They were cursed. They were looked down upon. And it would be common for this beggar to be spit on each and every day because of his status. Because of people walking by and they despised him. It would be common that he was probably beaten and kicked. And I guarantee this still happens to this day. Maybe not in America, but go to India or go to the Middle East. I don't know if you know this, but India has a whole class system 
uh, class of people in their caste system called the untouchables. 160 million people in this class system. And their name is the untouchables. They did not choose this position in life. These people uh, were born into it. They didn't have a choice. They were deemed impure, less than human. And so everyone treated them like that. And yet Jesus spits on the ground. He touched the uh, the man's eyes. Do you think this man flinched when he was touched? Do you see the intimacy of your Savior in that moment? And guys, as he's like forming the salve, as he's making mud, and he's using his spit, his hands, what do you guys think of with that? I did not realize this. Uh, It just came to me in the preparation. But you know what this reminds me of? It reminds me of creation. Genesis 2-7 says, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground, and he breathed life into his nostrils, and the man became a living creature. Jesus could have healed the man by his word. He could have done anything else, but he chose to spit, to form a salve out of dirt, and then touch the man. Jesus embraced this man and restored his his sight. A man who hasn't been touched or embraced probably his whole life. This is the overwhelming love of Jesus Christ for you. Guys, and I've actually, uh, obviously I'm not Jesus, but I have his spirit. I want to share with you a moment that I have had where I truly, without a doubt, knew that it was the love of God that just overwhelmed me. Uh, some of you guys know, I am, and probably like 12 years ago, I started a, a ministry for people with disabilities called Capernaum, and I started in multiple areas. And one of the, uh, the camps that I served at, uh, I was brought as a buddy, and it was a, I got placed with a, um, a group from uh, Greenville, South Carolina, and this group uh, was pretty much all uh, kids in, in wheelchairs. Um, and so they, a lot of them were quadriplegics. And I was a, a big man, so they said, hey, you're going to be with CW. You're pretty much going to be his hands and feet, you know, pretty much the whole camp. So if we need to get to the zip line, guess who's carrying him? Me. If he needs to go to the restroom, guess who's carrying him? Lifting him up, holding him close, putting him on uh, the toilet. If he needs to get shower, that's me. Dressed in the morning, dressed at night. And guys, it's exhausting. Um, but it's so worth it. And so this young kid, man, we go the extra mile and he had the best week of his life. And it was like day three or four out of like a six day camp. And he was just exhausted, right? And so he's laying in bed and I'm changing him, going through our routines. And this takes a while. And imagine arms and legs that don't work. And with that, you experience atrophy, All right, so he has no muscle definition. I literally have to do everything. And I'm taking his braces off, and I'm taking his bandages off, and I'm holding his feet. And they're deformed. They're grotesque. Um, They're hard to move. And I have to wash him each and every night with his feet. And guys, CW's just laying there, just exhausted, yet just, you know, has this smile. And as I'm be holding his feet and just washing him, I 
have this overwhelming sense of love and compassion for him. It was like, it's hard to explain, but it was like I was bracing his feet. The thing that everyone is probably saying, that's grotesque. Oh, I, I don't even want to be around that. I was embracing it and washing him like Jesus washed the disciples' feet. And I was filled with this love. And I just said, CW, God loves you so much. He's like, I know. That was a moment that was really cool to have just with God and and myself. Last week, uh, I had another similar moment. Guys, I didn't even know what I was preaching on, but this was a moment. And it was with one of our own, Rachel Petrie. Rachel Petrie uh, came to me and said, hey, Eric, I got this great idea. You need to meet this person. We're going to do a a camp or a respite uh, for people with disabilities. I'm like, great. I would love to help if I can. And so I hear this kind of pitch or this story of uh, her heart and her desires. And I'm like, okay, I can help you with these things. But I'm just going to be honest with you. I'm not going to like open the floodgates because I don't know you that well. And I would rather get to know you and, and work with you and see until I like really go all in. But I said, you see this girl over here? Because I was in the middle, Rachel, this person. I said, this girl, I'm all in with her. I don't care what she wants to do. Like I see God's hand all over her and whatever she wants to do, it's a yes. I'm going to figure it out. I don't, I don't know how, but whatever I can do because man, she's doing some incredible things. So I said, Rachel, what are your plans? What are your endeavors? What does God have for you? And she was like, you know what, Eric? Yeah, thank you for asking. Uh, you know, God has me. I thought she was going to say, like, go in and start this ministry. But she's like, I want to go to grad school for counseling. She's like, I want to tell people about Jesus and, and do grad school. I'm like, ah, oh, that is so awesome. And she just goes on and on sharing about her life. And she, she's talking for three minutes. Whenever you're talking to someone, uh, you're looking at them in the eyes. And I happen to be really close because it's a small table. It's a coffee shop. And I just am looking at her in the eyes. And then that overwhelming sense of the spirit came over me. And I wasn't going to tell her. But then I was like, no, you should tell her. She needs to know this. And I just said, hey, Rachel, can I stop you real quick? I just want to let you know your eyes are beautiful. You have beautiful eyes. (laughs) You can imagine Rachel. She was like taken back. Uh, she's like, oh, thanks. <laughs> and, and she kind of just went on. And uh, it was just a really cool moment. And she, was, she felt so loved and uh, felt the compassion. And I called her the next day and I said, hey, Rachel, has anyone ever shared with you that your eyes are beautiful? She's like, never. Not in my whole life. And if you look at Rachel's eyes and you're that close, right, you see uh, one eye that, man, has gone through a lot of surgeries, There's a lot of different things going on. Doctors and doctors and doctors and doctors all are like, this is an unbelievable case. Like, this is a miracle that you can see. You're not supposed to see, but the simple thing that you can see is it's a miracle from God. And there's this cloud of blues. It's it's cloudy and hazy on her other eye. it's, It's brown. I know because I was looking very intently. And it was just something came. It was like, just want an embrace and just want to let her know of God's love for her. I called her, and so she said, no, no one's ever told me that. And I was like, well, do you believe that about yourself? And she's like, you know what, Eric? I'm thankful that I can see, but these eyes often for me are, are pain subject because it's a reminder that I can't have normal opportunities like everyone else. And I'm limited She doesn't think she's defined by it, but she's like, I'm never going to drive a car, right? 
Everything's a lot harder of with that. And my prayer is I hope she would know that she can look in the mirror and know that her eyes are beautiful and she is beautiful. Church, I want to encourage you. I share all that to share this. Stop hiding your weaknesses. Stop hiding your insecurities. Stop hiding your hardships. 2 Corinthians 12, 9 through 10. This is Jesus. It says, my grace is sufficient for you. And my power is made perfect in weakness. And then Paul says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses and my insults and hardships and persecutions and difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Johnny Erickson Tata, who's an unbelievable theologian, says this, the greatest good your suffering can do for you is to increase your capacity for God. It's to increase your capacity for God. So when you are experiencing hardships, when life is tough, when you're going through difficulty, when you're at your end, that's when God shows up. That's when you have to exercise your faith and keep your eyes on him because you don't have any more strength, any more energy to try to do it by yourself and you look to God for everything. That's what we were created to to all, be in relationship with him and have that faith in the good times and the bad. But suffering can do that for us because it's his power that is made perfect in weaknesses. He is the God who sees you. The second point that I want to share with you is what do you see? In this passage, there are thousands and thousands of people that saw this man, but not as Jesus did. Jesus saw this man and was filled with compassion while others saw him and were filled with pity. Guys, I don't know if you understand, but compassion and pity are strong emotions just on the opposite side of the spectrum of where it originates from. Compassion originates out of love for a person's well-being, while pity originates out of the misfortunes of that person's circumstances, right? You feel sorry for someone. The Pharisees, they had shame for that person because they didn't want to be associated with them. We see this very plainly in the disciples' questions The disciples who were Jesus' chosen men, they said, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Do you hear any compassion in their voice? Did you ever think that they were like, hey, maybe he's hungry? It was all about, we got to know what this is. And they lost sight of the man. Even more than pity with the disciples, there is this faulty thinking within their question that surely this man or his parents had to have sin for this current state of this man. And I just want to just really make aware, guys, this is a very dangerous place to be for anybody to play God and know exactly why they're suffering, right? In a Faith Life Study Bible, it says this, the disciples' way of thinking derived from the desire to avoid making God responsible for afflicting suffering on the innocent. Wicked, sinful behavior led to suffering and punishment. 
The innocent should not suffer. Despite this popularity of beliefs, the Bible does not teach a uniform cause and effect relationship between sin and suffering. For example, the main uh, point of the Old Testament book of Job is to demonstrate the theological possibility of righteous, innocent suffering. Elsewhere, Jesus also affirms that sin and disaster are not always directly related to suffering. Guys, and this cause and effect, right? This, this is a prosper, prosperity gospel that a lot of churches proclaim here and now. If I do this, this, and this, and this, then God's going to reward me with a new car, right? A mansion. Maybe I get a jet. Maybe it's good health for all my family. Guys, that's not how God works. And that's a dangerous place to be. There was a time uh, in our marriage, early on in our marriage, where we were trying to have kids. My wife, uh, (laughs) she has always aspired to be a mom, all right? And when I say being a mom, like, she wants, like, 20 or 30 kids, guys. Like, trust me, like... Literally, she wants 20 or 30 kids. Uh, just give them to me, Eric. Just give them left and right. I'm like, oh, I don't know. I'm like that with puppies. Hey, I'll take all the dogs. Um, but with that, guys, there was, if you know her story, we experienced three miscarriages. And it was so devastating. And that's why I talked a little bit about the mothers in this room that have experienced a miscarriage or a stillborn. It is tough. That's why every month there is heart-wrenching pain left and right. It was very, very hard for our family. Guys, there was a point, probably around like year four, year five, where Kristen was just so exhausted, so wore out, that she literally just said to me, with tears, Eric, I feel like I'm just cursed by God. I feel like I'm cursed. And some of you here today may have that same thoughts. Maybe you believe that. And as a husband and as a protector and as someone that knows the Lord, I was like, babe, and that holy discontent and that strongness, like boldness came out. It's like, we are not going to believe that in this household. That is of Satan. That is a lie. That is not of God. That is not what God's word says. For you are in Christ. He loves you. He's the one that became a curse so that you may be free. You are not cursed. And we're not going to believe this. You're his beloved, his daughter. His favor is upon you because of the blood of Jesus, not because of anything you have done in your past. And that's why we're not having kids. That's a dangerous place to be, church. And I encourage you to, to cut it out whenever you go down that dark cycle. But specifically, oh, real quick. Please know, I do believe in natural consequences of sin, Right? Of like, hey, if I'm going to do this, then, then X happens. I believe that. But when we try to play God and we say, oh, no, that's why they're suffering. I'm talking about suffering. That's just a dangerous place. And again, look at the whole book. Read Job itself. Specifically, going back to the disciples' questions, the best verse I have found in the Bible when it comes to how God feels about people with disabilities is in verse 3. It says this. Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. 
is going back to Ephesians 2.10 and Jeremiah 29, guys, that God has a plan for all of us. And so that's why within the church, even people with disabilities, I'm not just talking about people with disabilities, all people, they all have a gift. They all are called to be a part of the body of Christ. I don't care who they are. We got to figure it out. We want you uh, to be a part because if one part suffers, we all suffer. If you don't do your part, then the church is lacking. And so even with people with disabilities, my friends, they have a part. Johnny Erickson Tata uh, says this as well. She, he's, she says, God deliberately chooses weak, suffering, and unlikely candidates to get his work done so that in the end, the glory goes to God and not the person. God shows special honor. The saddest part of this whole chapter in the Bible is this. Most likely for 30 plus years, this man sat and he begged his whole life while everyone went about their business as normal. No one invited him into the synagogue. No one invited him into their homes. No one took him under their wing or to care for his needs on a regular basis. Not even his own parents. He was a living burden and a constant eyesore to everyone in their community. And this is a question that I've asked you guys, just I've been wrestling with and I've brought to you guys' attention, but I, I, I come across it again. It's this question is, what would the American church look like if we actually treated and cared for people the way Jesus did? What would our churches look like if we truly loved the way Jesus did? I remember, uh, you know, when we were coming to Independence and we were looking for a place and actually getting close for the launch of the Independence campus. I was at BW3s uh, with some, some guys, Will Fan, I think Stephen Petrie was there. And we were just kind of even eating, talking, hanging out. And our server, just physically, right? you know, quick, you stereotype this person. This person had a a shaved head. His head was all deformed. His eyes, there was something off. He looked like he's been through the ringer with drugs, right? I don't know if you know this, but there's a drug epidemic here in Northern Kentucky. And I guarantee all of us knows someone who's addicted or someone has just life has been ruined by drugs. And this man You can just tell. And so we're just talking to him, and he actually shares his faith with us. And I was like, this is awesome. This guy loves Jesus. And it was so cool to see uh, the light of Jesus, right? Jesus overflow from his heart. And I told him about, or I think Stephen did. He's an evangelist. And he was like, hey, our church is open. You know, we'd love to have you come and, and check it out. And I was thinking, and I'm not saying this of Grace Fellowship, But I've been around a lot of Christians. I have. And my heart broke of, if this man showed up into our church, what would we think? Would we feel safe around him? And it just just kind of broke my heart. And again, please know I'm not speaking of us or anything like that or any of the other campus. No, it was just more so as a pastor because... Visibly, everything within me says, don't trust that man. I'm just being honest with you, right? That's why of with our campus and and the tone, it was like hearts wide open. 
we're going to have hearts wide open. Everyone who walks through this door, we're going to, I hope and pray that they feel welcomed. They feel loved. They appreciate it. We go, we shake hands, and we look at them in the eyes. We say, we're so glad that you're here. This is a safe place for people to hear the most amazing news for them, for us, right? If this room doesn't grow, if, if this room stays stagnant year after year and the only people we add are people that church hop, we saw a lot of that during COVID, guys. I've talked with a lot of pastors. It was just one family going to a church to the next. Then we have missed the purpose of the church and what Jesus came to die for. We have missed it. And our lives are not reflecting the gospel. And I'm speaking boldly for a reason, because here's why. At the heart of the gospel, we have a God who left everything to pursue a people unworthy, to pursue a people that are lost, that are blind, in darkness, that were our orphans, right? To give them, bring them into the family of God, to give them new life, to give them new community, new hope, and a new purpose. If God would go to extreme lengths to save you and I, we can sacrifice our time. We can sacrifice our resources, our lives to go after people with the hope and the beauty of the gospel. And if you're here today and you're thinking, hey, you know what? I just, I just don't agree with that. I just would encourage you, just please like read your Bibles. And I'm not saying that to condemn or, you know, like, oh, you just need to read your Bible. Like, no, really. Like, I would just really lovingly say, read your Bibles and take this personal because that was us at one time. If you don't know how to do that, then meet with someone who is doing this and learn from them. Invite them to coffee or lunch, pay for their meal and just say, just teach me. You do such a great job of loving people. I want to be effective and used by God, right? We have friends. We're we're supposed to help each other. If you are looking for a next practical step, I got one for you. It's simple. Pray and ask God to help you see others the way God sees them. Guys, I promise you that simple prayer is life-changing. I didn't share this in the first service, but you guys are going to get it. I remember in college at Thomas More, right? I'm listening, but then I just am like having devotion. And I decide, you know what? I'm going to just go name by name, and I'm going to pray for the people I'm just going to pray God's love for them. My whole attitude changed. It was amazing to pray for someone and look at them in the eye. Don't you know that God loves you? Hey, football's not your identity. You have purpose. You have worth. And I just went that name by name. When we pray, we start to see from God's perspective. I would encourage you to just be uncomfortable. Be uncomfortable. I know it's easy to talk to all our friends, all the friends that we know, right? Or to hang in our circles outside of church. What does it look like to invite people into your circle? To enjoy a meal over with your family? That's so intimate. And that's what Jesus did, right? I would encourage you, be uncomfortable. And this brings me to my last point. Who is Jesus to you? We see in this passage, we go back and forth with the interrogation of the Pharisees and a a variety of people in this man's life wondering how this man can see. 
the Pharisees, right? I'm going to classify them. They were convinced without a doubt, blinded by their own hardness of hearts, that Jesus was a sinner because he had no origin, because he performed miracles on the Sabbath, because he made claims that he and the Father were one. Right? We see the crowd of people all watch this miracle happen before their very eyes. Right? There was a crowd. And, and they knew that this man was blind and now sees. But e- each and every one of them goes back home and still goes about their normal lives without putting their trust and their faith in Jesus. We see the parents who out of fear of men and what others would think about them wanted nothing to do with their own son nor the power of Jesus. Who do you say Jesus is? What's your thoughts on him? One of the best answers in all the Bible, someone whose life has been changed forever, is found in verse 25. The man says, (laughs) real quick, the arrogance of the Pharisees, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. And the man answered, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. But one thing I do know, I was blind and now I see. And you can't take anything away from that. I see. I don't care what you say about him. I see. When you have an encounter with Jesus, I truly believe a true encounter with Jesus, your life is changed forever. There is this miracle that happens within your heart in which you were once dead and now you're alive. You were once lost and now you're found. You were once a prisoner to your sin and now you have been set free. You were once blind and now you see. No one in this room has power to save. Only Jesus can. So what about you? Who is Jesus? I want to close with verse 35 and following. So let's all turn there real quick. John 9, 35. It says this. Jesus heard that they had casted him out. And having found him, said, do you believe in the Son of Man? The man answered, who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said, you have now seen him. It is he who is speaking to you. And he said, Lord, I believed and he worshiped. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Notice how this man was casted out. Guys, Jesus was also casted out. He left and went after the man, sought him, and found him. That is the love of Christ for you and for me. Our sin separates us from a holy God, right? We were enemies of him. There's a separation, and yet Jesus came from heaven to earth, sought us out, found us, and reveals his precious love. And that is a miracle from God. And then he went on that cross, and he died for you 
and for me and for the whole world so that you may no longer be orphans, no longer be separated, no longer be lost, no longer be blind. That is the love of Christ. And so, in your search here today, I would encourage you, whether you're an unbeliever or you're a believer and you're growing in relationship with God, I would encourage you in your quest to go to the Bible and read it. Read it from Genesis to Revelation. You don't have to do it in that order, but read the Bible because this Bible right here, all throughout it, speaks of the wonderful Messiah that we have in Jesus, who was and is and is to come. I'm going to show you real quick in closing. Guys, in Genesis, he is the creator who is God, and he's in the beginning with God. In Exodus, he is our Passover lamb. In Leviticus, he is our great high priest. In Numbers, he's the living water in the desert. In Deuteronomy, he is our deliverer. In Joshua, he's the commander of the army of the Lord. In Judges, he's the Lord of peace. In Ruth, he's our redeemer. First Samuel, he is our prophet, priest, and king. In Second Samuel, he's a rock of salvation. In First Kings, he's the builder of the temple that would never fall. In Second Kings, he's the reigning king. In First Chronicles, he's the son of David that is coming to rule. In Second Chronicles, he's the king who reigns eternally. In Ezra, he's a priest proclaiming freedom. In Nehemiah, he's the one that restores what is broken. In Esther, he's a protector of all people. In Job, he's a mediator between God and between man. In Psalms, he is our song in the morning and the night. In Proverbs, he's our wisdom and strong tower. In Ecclesiastes, he's our meaning to life when everything else is vain. In Song of Solomon, he's the author of faithful love. In Isaiah, he's our wonderful counselor, our mighty God, our everlasting father, and the prince of peace. In Jeremiah, he's the weeping Messiah. In Lamentation, he assumes God's wrath for us. In Ezekiel, he's the son of man. In Daniel, he's the son of God with us in the fiery furnace. In Hosea, he's a faithful husband when we run away. In Joel, he's the baptizer of the Holy Spirit. In Amos, he delivers justice to the oppressed. In Obadiah, he's mighty to save. In Jonah, he's the great missionary. In Micah, he casts our sin into the sea of forgetfulness. In Nahum, he proclaims future world peace. In Habakkuk, he crushes injustice. In Zephaniah, he's a warrior who saves. In Haggai, he restores our worship. In Zechariah, he's a Lord and King over all the earth. In Malachi, he's a son of righteousness who brings healing. I'm going to take a little break. He keeps going. In Matthew, he's the Messiah who is King. In Mark, he's the Messiah who's a servant. In Luke, he's the Messiah that's the deliverer. In John, he's the word that became flesh. In Acts, he's a spirit that indwells in his people. In Romans, he's the power of God for salvation. In 1 Corinthians, he's a conqueror over death, our resurrection. In 2 Corinthians, he's a down payment of what's to come. In Galatians, he's our inheritance. In Ephesians, he's our peace at the right hand of the Father. In Philippians, he's a God that meets all of our needs. In Colossians, he holds supreme position of all things. In 1 Thessalonians, he's a comfort in the last day. In 2 Thessalonians, he's a comfort, or 2 Thessalonians, he's a returning king. In 1 Timothy, he's a crown of righteousness. 2 Timothy, he is Christ, the helper. 
Titus, he is our hope. Philemon, he is a friend that sticks closer than a brother. Hebrews, he ushers in a new and better covenant. And James, he is a great physician. First Peter, he's our hope in times of sufferings. Second Peter, he's a restorer of all things. And first John, he's our love and light. And second John, he's Christ that comes in flesh. And third John, he's our prosperity, health, and peace. And Jude, Jesus is Lord coming with 10,000 believers. And Revelation, Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, and he's coming again, and he wants to make all things new. He is Jesus, he is Lord, and he is coming back for those whom he loves. So who is Jesus to you? Go to the Bible. It's written so that you may have a relationship, so that you would know your Heavenly Father, that you would know King Jesus Come to faith that you may no longer be blinded by your sin and follow the ruler and the prince of this world of darkness. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for this glorious gospel. Lord, thank you that the word became flesh. And we know it wasn't an accident. We know that it wasn't in vain. It was to pursue us and our folly and our sin and our blindness and our darkness. You are the God who sees us. You love us. You know the very hairs of our head and you know exactly what we're going through. The sorrow, the pain, the hurt. Lord, I pray against any unbelief here today. Anybody that's struggling to connect with you, I pray, Lord, that you would touch their hearts just like she touched the blind man. Lord, that you would break through and you would know that you are making all things new. And I pray that they would put their faith in you here today. Lord, they would see. They would see the things of God. They would experience the things of God. They would be brought into a community, a church that loves them, and they would have purpose and a hope. Lord, I also pray for the believers here today. I pray for the trials, the hardships, the storms that they may be in. I pray their suffering would not go to waste. And I pray that you would increase the capacity for them to experience you. Pray that they would not rely on anything in the past, but put their full trust in you, knowing that you are a great shepherd. You do know best. You lead us through the valley. You have a great inheritance for us. I pray for anybody there that they would not forget that you see them and that you love them and that you're with them. Lord, thanks for this time. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for the blood. Thank you that you are seated at the right hand of God, interceding for us. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.